Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Uh, Are we worried that something could happen tomorrow? <laughs> um, this is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. The 2024 presidential election will likely go down in history as both the longest and most legally tangled race for president ever. With a replay of the 2020 election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump essentially set, the apparent Republican nominee is facing an avalanche of legal problems. There are civil and criminal cases underway in New York, Manhattan, Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C., in addition to questions pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. And here to help us unpack and understand these cases is UC Berkeley's law school dean, Erwin Chemerinsky. Dean Chemerinsky, welcome. It's always wonderful to talk with you. Well, let me begin. I want to give I will give just a quick summary of these things. In Georgia, uh, Trump is charged with orchestrating what the DA describes as a criminal enterprise to overturn uh, the 2020 election results. In Florida, the issue is mishandling of national security documents. And then in Washington, D.C., the Department of Justice is pursuing charges related to the attack on the Capitol and efforts to overturn the election. And then in New York, in addition to the civil charges we've been hearing about uh, brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll and that $88 million in penalties in, the, in two cases there, um, we also have an alleged fraud case brought by the state's attorney general. So we'll get into the details of all that in a bit. But just, you know, to start with, for a general audience, tell us, you know, what you think is important about each of those cases. And you left one out. There is a criminal prosecution against Donald Trump in New York State Court for basically the cover-up with regard to Stormy Daniels. I think you hit the key point. Never before have we had a presidential candidate enmeshed in so much litigation, some of which goes to the very heart of whether or not he's eligibly president of the United States. Well, and we will get to that very question uh, because that is one of the questions the Supreme Court is going to be taking up. But when you think about all of those things, which one creates the most both legal jeopardy potentially for Donald Trump and also the, maybe you know the one that is most likely to uh, end in a prosecution? I think the two cases that have the most legal jeopardy are the federal district court case in Washington, which is prosecuting him for his role in the insurrection on January 6th, and the Georgia case that basically goes to whether he is trying to subvert the election in Georgia. And the reason I mentioned both is if Donald Trump is elected president, he at least in theory could pardon himself from the federal charges, but he can't pardon himself relative to the state charges in Georgia or New York State Court. 
So that Georgia case, let's uh, dig into that a little bit. Uh, the DA there in Fulton County, uh, Fawny Willis, uh, is charging him with a, basically a criminal enterprise to overturn the election results in that state. There's that infamous call between Trump uh, and the Secretary of State, the chief election official, where he says, please find me 11,000 plus votes, one more than I have now, basically, so I can win the election. Um, how important is that tape recording? And, uh, you know, wh- what is your take on how the DA has handled that? The tape recording is enormously important. You put it much more politely than President Trump when you <laughs> characterize it as saying, please find me 11,000 votes. He was much more threatening than that. And to say to the Secretary of State, basically make me the winner of the election, regardless of the popular vote, is at odds with any conception of democracy. It's interesting that here the district attorney prosecuted a large number of individuals, and many have questioned that choice, but keep in mind that many of them have already pled guilty and will likely testify against Donald Trump if there's a trial. And um, that tape recording, of course, was so so interesting that uh, he is a Republican, and yet he chose to record that conversation, uh, which is, I don't know, in California, that wouldn't be legal. Is that legal in Georgia? In California, we have so-called two-party consent. Both parties to the conversation must consent to the call. I don't know Georgia law in that regard, but my guess since that hasn't come up is Georgia's like many states that you don't need both parties to consent. Well, let's um, dig into one particular aspect of this case that, that has caused some controversy for the district attorney uh, in the last few weeks. Um, she has come under fire for I guess, hiring somebody as the prosecutor that she was allegedly romantically involved with. And uh, there was some news uh, this week that the prosecutor, Nathan Wade, had actually settled a divorce with his wife, which could avoid kind of a messy hearing on their relationship. But what is what are your thoughts both about that as an issue in the case and then also the, the significance, if any, of this being supported? I don't think this is the kind of conflict of interest that would normally disqualify the district attorney or Wade. A conflict of interest exists when it would be a personal interest of the district attorney that would make that person unsuited to handle the prosecution. Imagine that she had a financial interest in Donald Trump's companies. Then we wouldn't want her handling the prosecution if there was a personal relationship to Donald Trump or the defendants. But the fact that she had a personal relationship to another prosecutor doesn't create a conflict of interest. Now, the concern is, did she violate Georgia law in hiring him for a large amount of money, given the personal relationship? But I don't think that goes to the question of whether she's disqualified from prosecuting Donald Trump. Of course, we know that Trump's legal team is already and will continue to sort of use this to muddy the waters, to kind of call into question the legitimacy of the charges. Now, that's more of a court of public opinion kind of question. But what are your thoughts about that as a legal tactic? I don't think from everything that I've heard that this presents a basis for disqualifying the district attorney. We might think in different circumstances to avoid any appearance of impropriety, she would appoint a special prosecutor, but that would further delay the trial. And I think given the circumstances, she wants us to go forward and go forward as quickly as possible. And apparently she tried to hire any number of other people to be the prosecutor in this case. They turned her down, apparently out of you know, out of concern for their own personal security or how it would upend their lives. Does that matter at all in her defense of uh, having hired him? 
Legally, I don't think she's disqualified. I think in terms of appearance, it does help for her to say, given the circumstances, I didn't have somebody else to come in and take over. I need to go forward with this case. How likely is it, based on everything we know about that case, that it is going to get underway soon and could have a resolution, either a guilty or not guilty uh, uh, decision uh, before, you know, before the election? I think there's a real chance that this case will go forward. Now, if the district attorney is disqualified and if another lawyer needs to be found, then no way it's going to go forward before the election. But I think of all of the cases, this might be the one that is the best chance. And maybe the New York federal case involving Stormy Daniels. And as you said, that is something that would not be appealable by him if he were to win uh, or to, you know, to give himself immunity, I should say, pardon himself. Now, to be clear, it's never been decided whether a president could pardon himself or herself. The Constitution gives the president the power to pardon. No president has tried ever to pardon himself. I think there's an argument that the president shouldn't be able to do this, but we don't know. And I have no doubt that if Donald Trump were elected, he would pardon himself from all federal charges. But a president cannot issue a pardon as to state convictions. So the New York conviction, the Georgia conviction, if they happen, can't be a basis for a pardon. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with UC Berkeley's law school dean, Erwin Chemerinsky. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We're talking with the dean of UC Berkeley's law school, Erwin Chemerinsky, about Donald Trump's many, many legal problems, criminal 
and civil cases. Dean Chemerinsky, let's move to Florida, where the uh, DOJ, the prosecutor Jack Smith, has charged him with refusing to hand over national security documents that he took with him uh, when he left the White House. We've seen the photos from Mar-a-Lago with these boxes and documents strewn on the floor. Um, tell us about that case in terms of, uh, you know, the, the strength of the charges against him. It is about intentionally mishandling and keeping classified documents. We now know from reports that some of these were extremely sensitive documents. And the claim is that he did this willfully. And there's also a claim that he attempted to cover it up. And so again, these seem very serious charges against Donald Trump for basically abusing his office. And there are also people who worked for him who were uh, also charged, people around him. Uh, one apparently was told to delete the security camera detail. There's some, I think, sense that he's now cooperating with the prosecution. How significant would that be? It is, and that's the cover-up that I was referring to. And often the cover-up is as serious a crime as the underlying offense. After all, if we all think back to Watergate, what the individuals were prosecuted for and what Richard Nixon all resigned for was the Watergate cover-up and asking that security tapes be deleted, asking that people lie, that's suborning perjury. I think that could be very serious charges about the integrity of Donald Trump. I want to ask you about the judge in that case. She was randomly assigned. Her name is Eileen Cannon. She's a bit controversial. She's a Trump appointee. She seems a little perhaps favorably disposed toward him in some of the pretrial motions. How do you see that issue potentially playing out? There's no doubt that when there were searches being done, Judge Cannon was favorably disposed towards President Trump and got reversed from the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. She provided Donald Trump protection from searches that the law just doesn't allow. Many people said that that's because she was a so-called Trump judge. Very young woman put on the federal district court by Donald Trump. I think she's about 35 years old at the time. Um, we don't know how she's going to handle the trial. A judge can make many rulings that could be favorable or unfavorable to each side. I don't want to assume that she's going to be favorable to Trump just because she was a year ago when all of this was happening. But she is somebody who Trump put on the bench and she is known to be very conservative. And she'll certainly be under a lot of scrutiny. Um, you know, some have suggested that because this case is happening in Trump's adopted home state uh, of Florida, that he might find a more, um, you know, sympathetic jury, one that would be harder to win a conviction with. Um, any truth to that, do you think? possible. Um, certainly the New York juries and the Gene Carroll sexual assault and defamation cases have not been favorable towards Donald Trump. Um, and many think perhaps in Washington, D.C., a jury would be less favorable to Donald Trump. But again, what we're talking about is in a criminal case, 12 people from the community. And it's hard then when you're dealing with so few people to say, because the area may be more pro-Trump or more anti-Trump, that will tell us who's on the jury. I mean, both sides get to uh, toss uh, prospective jurors off, right, based on what they say or write in their questionnaire. Or each side gets a certain number of peremptory challenges, which means they can strike jurors for no reason at all, so long as it's not based on race or sex. Again, we're guessing based on the jury. Well, I can imagine having 
12 people in D.C. who are very pro-Trump or 12 people in Florida who are very against Trump. But hopefully the jury selection process will give us a fair jury in all of these cases. All right, let's move to the federal charges related to the January 6th uprising, the riots at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Three conspiracy charges there in connection with his effort to stay in power, Uh, one to defraud the United States, one to obstruct uh, the government proceedings there in the House, and then a third to uh, deprive people of their civil rights, I guess, provided by the Constitution. Um, This seems to be a really fundamental issue, one that goes to the heart of our democracy, you know, overturning a free and fair election. Um, Would you say that of all the charges, this is the most important in terms of the severity of what's being alleged here? Absolutely. The only thing I'd say is I think it's also similar to what's being alleged in Georgia. That's focused on one state. This is focused on the country in January 6th. But these are charges that really go to, as you rightly say, the heart of democracy. And you have, you know, cases of him, um, you know, obviously he encouraged people to come to uh, to the Capitol, but he also was on the phone. He was pressuring the vice president to do certain things. He was talking to people in different states. Of all those pieces of evidence, what do you think is the most, one of the most, say the one or two or three most critical? I think that what Donald Trump did here was try to create fake electors for Mike Pence to recognize to make him president. He was trying to get Pence to make decisions as vice president to make Donald Trump president. I think he also played a role in encouraging people to come to January 6th to participate in the insurrection. So they're very serious charges against Trump. And what's key now that we haven't mentioned is that Trump has claimed that he has immunity from all of these charges by virtue of these actions taken when he was president. The district court ruled against him and said, a president doesn't have immunity except for things done in carrying out the presidency itself. None of these were carrying out the presidency. The case was appealed to the D.C. Circuit. Oral argument was a few weeks ago. I expect we'll hear it very soon. From the oral argument, it seemed that the D.C. Circuit was inclined to rule against Trump and deny him immunity. I expect Trump would then go to the Supreme Court. What will be interesting is what the Supreme Court does. The Supreme Court could deny review, and then it would go back for a trial in district court. The Supreme Court could grant expedited review in the case and hear it this spring and decide by the end of June, but still we wouldn't have the trial beginning this spring. Or the Supreme Court could grant review and say, we'll hear it next fall, in which case then the trial is delayed, maybe until after Trump is president. So I think everyone should pay careful attention to what the D.C. Circuit says, but then what does the Supreme Court do with the case? How likely is it you think they could just just not take it up? I think that's very likely. Um, They had the chance to take it up before the D.C. Circuit heard it. It's unusual for the court to hear it before the Court of Appeals, but it's not unheard of. And they denied review at that stage. If the D.C. Circuit rules against Trump, the Supreme Court could deny review, and it goes back for a trial. If the D.C. Circuit rules in favor of Trump, which I think is unlikely, the special prosecutor could go to the Supreme Court, and then I'm less sure what the Supreme Court would do. 
I want to get to the New York case uh, cases in a moment. But uh, the other thing the Supreme Court is dealing with is this question of whether states like Colorado and Maine can throw Trump off the ballot because he participated in an insurrection, which is prohibited by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, there's dispute about whether or not that applies to the president. That isn't explicit in that section. What are your thoughts? How do you see that? This is a hugely important case. It will be argued to the court on Thursday, February 8th. The case is called Trump versus Anderson. And as you rightly point out, it involves Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says no one can be a senator or representative or an elector for president or hold any civil or military office if, having previously taken oath of office, they participate in a rebellion or insurrection. So there are many issues before the Supreme Court. Does this apply to the president? It's a senator, representative, electors, any civil office. I think it clearly applies to the president because it says any civil office, as the Colorado Supreme Court said, it enumerates senator and representatives and electors because those aren't deemed civil offices. Senators and representatives are members of Congress. Electors don't hold office. The second question is, did Donald Trump participate in an insurrection? What is an insurrection? How is he to determine whether he participated? And of course, the Supreme Court's never faced these questions in the past. It is true, though, that some of his appointees have ruled against him, much to his consternation, right, on the Supreme Court? There are certainly times when his appointees have ruled against him. I don't know in this instance whether or not Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett will be more inclined to rule in favor of President Trump. The natural inclination to say that the six conservative justices appointed by Republican presidents aren't going to vote to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Yeah. Um, moving now to New York, uh, the DA in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, uh, is prosecuting the hush money to Stormy Daniels uh, to cover up that affair. Uh, we also have uh, the AG, uh, the Letitia James, uh, going after him on this um, uh, questions of him inflating his net worth by billions of dollars to get favorable loans and insurance uh, policies and so on. Um, how much jeopardy uh, do those uh, offer for him? And, uh, you know, and, and also just if you would speak to the question, he has pointed out that all these prosecutors are Democrats, uh, you know, Alvin Bragg, Democrat black man, uh, Letitia James, black woman, Democrats, all of them. Um, same with the, you know, the prosecutor down in uh, Fulton County in Georgia. Does that, again, does it just muddy the waters? I, you know, I know there's, there's no necessarily any merit to it, but what, what impact does that rhetoric have, do you think? It muddies the waters and it appeals to his supporters. He's saying to people, don't give way to all these cases against me. They're all politically motivated. And he looks for any occasion he can to say that all of this is politically motivated. In terms of the New York case, I think they pose possible jeopardy to Trump in two different ways. The criminal case poses jeopardy in terms of a criminal conviction that could include a prison sentence. And remember, since it's in a New York state court, even if Trump is elected, he couldn't give a pardon. And the evidence here seems strong. It comes from Michael Cohen. And it's Donald Trump paying money to Stormy Daniels and another woman in the 2016 election season to keep their affairs secret. And then his misrecording it on corporate books in a way that is fraud under New York law. No one seems to deny that 
she paid the money or authorized to be paid. No one seems to deny that it was misrepresented in the records. The other case involves Trump's business, and there are no criminal consequences to that. But Trump could be prevented from doing business in New York, and that could have large financial consequences for him. Finally, the case uh, that's been in the news the last uh, couple of weeks, the one, uh, the case brought by, the civil case brought by E. Jean Carroll, who accused Trump of raping her in a dressing room in the 90s and then defaming her. Um, The judge in that case uh, basically um, confirmed that uh, Trump raped her. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of talk about that. It doesn't seem to have as much, gotten as much attention as the size of the penalties, uh, 5 million in one case, 83 in another. Um, is that a case where he, if nothing, well, I mean, obviously it hits him in the pop- pocketbook, but uh, he, he wouldn't face, uh, he doesn't face any you know, prison time over that, right? In the first case, the jury found that Trump had engaged in sexual assault against Carol, and the jury had awarded her $5 million. In the second case, it was about defamation of Carol, and the jury awarded counting punitive damages $83 million. Obviously, there were a lot of appeals to come, but even for a very wealthy man, almost $90 million is a lot of money. It's not pocket change. And he seems to be inviting further suits. After found liable, he said things that she could then use for another defamation suit against him. Um, But obviously, for those who support Donald Trump, they're not moved by this any more than some of his very sexist and offensive statements, the Access Hollywood tape seemed to matter before the 2016 election. Interesting, too, that uh, E. Jean Carroll said she's going to use that money for good causes uh, to perhaps further the rights of women who are in, you know, violent uh, relationships or something. We'll have to wait and see. Um, If he is convicted in any of these things, is he fit either legally or otherwise to be president? That's obviously something that the voters would have to decide other than the case that we mentioned that's before the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court could say, by virtue of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, he's disqualified. But that would be the only basis for disqualification. On the other hand, we could have an amazing situation where Donald Trump is sentenced to prison in New York or Georgia, but nonetheless elected president of the United States. That would be a constitutional crisis unlike any before seen in American history. But we've also never seen anyone like Donald Trump in American history. What are you going to be looking for in the next uh, few weeks or maybe even months? What, what, what's top of mind for you? I look chronologically. I start with the Supreme Court arguments on February 8th in Trump versus Anderson. Is there any likelihood that the court would be willing to say Donald Trump is barred from being president? We might get a sense of the oral argument. I would expect the justice will try to rule quickly. I would look next for the D.C. Circuit decision on whether Trump is immune from being prosecuted in the District of Columbia because the action taken is being president. Assuming he's not immune, then I said, what does the Supreme Court do? Going to follow what happens in Georgia, because that could be a case that could go to trial soon. There is this sort of conflict of interest issue, and the judge is going to have to rule on it. Um, Then down the road, we've got the Florida criminal trial, the New York State trial. We've got the possible trial in D.C. and federal court. Um, Donald Trump, while running for president, is going to spend a lot of time in courtrooms. Yeah, and he's treating them like campaign stops in some cases. Well, this is going to give uh, certainly law professors things to talk about in their classes for decades to come, I'm sure. 
All right, UC Berkeley's law school dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, thank you so much as always for joining us. Truly my pleasure. And that is a wrap for Wednesday, January 31st. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.